This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Biden administration eager to signal a sense of control. This after the Omicron variant was detected in this country, swinging into action. It's a nine-point plan. Among the uh, plan's points requiring insurance reimbursement for the costs of rapid COVID testing. But is all of this going to be enough to keep this new variant contained? We'll go in-depth. And why? Why, after suffering through nearly two years of this, does testing remain so inaccessible and expensive for many? And also, did the variant actually go through its mutations inside the body of an animal and not a human? Alec Baldwin will be on ABC tonight. He'll claim he did not pull the trigger of that gun when his cinematographer was killed on set. Is that even possible? New polling shows L.A.'s homeless crisis is going to loom very large in next year's mayoral race. And then Major League Baseball owners have locked out their players. Will baseball be back by the spring? We start, though, with a plan to contain Omicron. Larry Levitt. Executive Vice President for Health Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. He served as a senior health policy advisor to the White House and in the uh, Clinton administration. Larry, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, I don't want to go through all the nine uh, points of uh, the Biden plan, but uh, two uh, key ones, it seems to me. Uh, one is this notion about paying or getting reimbursed for at-home testing, and the other is uh, to require those people coming into the U.S. from overseas be tested not uh, 72 hours before, as is currently the uh, the, the game plan, but uh, I think it's 24 hours before. Uh, does all that and more accomplish anything? Uh, it, it does accomplish a lot. I mean, we, we have, I think, under-emphasized testing from, from the start of this pandemic. Uh, and and the, the problem is that, you know, there's a period of time between you, when you get exposed to someone who is infected with COVID uh, and when uh, you yourself might have symptoms. Uh, but during that period, you can still infect others. So that you know, had, has the potential to really fuel uh, outbreaks. Uh, and that could be particularly true with a new variant. So, you know, regular testing, particularly if you think you may have been in a situation where you were exposed, uh, becomes really important. The, the problem is, um, you know, you have a couple options now. You can go to a testing site or a doctor's office, uh, but you may not get results for several days. By that point, kind of, you know, you may have already infected a, a bunch of people. Uh, there are also these at-home tests have, that have been on the market, um, but they're expensive. You know, typically if you walk into a pharmacy, it's hard to find these at-home tests, but even if you can, uh, you know, they come in a pack of two and they often cost about 25 bucks. And that's a lot of money for people. So what the, the Biden administration is proposing uh, or, or will, will, um, uh, will issue rules about is requiring insurance companies to cover these at-home tests at no charge to patients. We would expect maybe some people to go through that and get the reimbursement. Do we expect most, though, to sort of jump through the hoops after the fact and say, hey, I bought a couple of these or, you know, six if I got a family. Uh, now give me my money. Yeah, you know, I mean, human nature is human nature, right? Um, the, uh, in fact, health insurance actuaries call this the shoebox effect. Uh, you go out, you buy these at-home tests at the pharmacy, you get the receipt, you stick it in a shoebox somewhere, and you never get around to, to submitting the reimbursement. Or when you do submit the reimbursement, the insurance company denies it, and then you forget about trying to, you know, appeal it or, or deal with it. So, you know, it's, it's not perfect. Um, uh, in fact, if you look at what some other countries are doing, 
uh, it's much better there. For example, in, in the UK, uh, you can order tests for free online from the National Health Service. You can walk into a pharmacy and get them free. Um, that that would be kind of much yeah, easier. And, well, and, and, and to your point, uh, Larry, Germany, I think, is, is pretty much the same, the same thing. But that raises the question, A, why can't we do that? And B, uh, all these people who are pretty smart, I presume, who come up with these plans, do they not live in the real world? Have they ever actually go, you know, have they gone to a pharmacy? Have they gone to CVS? Yeah, and, right, and try, and try to get one of these tests and see if they can find it and how much it costs. Have they gone overseas and on their return flight actually undergo the, the pressure of having to have a test done not three days before now, but 24 hours before your flight? That's a lot. Sure. No, there are, uh, I mean, there are complications in, in all of this. I mean, I, I went to a Walgreens to get a rapid test the other day and, you know, it was behind the cash register. She only had a few of them and uh, it, it certainly wasn't, wasn't easy. I mean, I think part of what the Biden administration is dealing with now is uh, they were trying to do some things quickly that they have the authority to do. Uh, yeah, they could go back to Congress and, and get money to to buy tests for anyone who wanted them and make them available for free in pharmacies. But uh, you know, given but given how yeah, Congress but, but, works these days, yeah, that, but, but like, that's not likely. Yeah, but didn't they? You know, because so much stuff has happened in the past eighteen plus months, it's almost hard to keep track. Didn't they get money uh, quite some time ago from Congress as part of all the different uh, bills that went through to uh, to help because of the pandemic? Wasn't a lot of that money supposedly to subsidize things like at-home testing? Didn't President Biden a few months ago at a news conference say something along the lines of that these at-home tests will be available at cost? Well, 25 bucks doesn't seem like at cost. Right. No, there there has been money to do it. Not not enough to to do. I think what what other countries like the UK and Germany are doing. Uh, but as also as part of this this Biden plan, they will be distributing tests to community organizations, community health centers, rural clinics. Uh, but you know, it's tens of millions. It's not it's not billions, which is uh, you know what we really might need if we wanted everyone to test test regularly. Larry Levitt, Executive Vice President, Health Policy, the Kaiser Family Foundation. Criticisms, complaints about, as you just heard, the availability of COVID testing in this country. It's been a constant thing for almost two years now, and still COVID testing is hit or miss in this country. When we come back, we will ask yet another person, how come? You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you're a baseball fan, might have noticed a spending spree on free agents assigned to massive contracts over the last week. Today, though, players locked out by the owners. We'll explain before that. Alec Baldwin claims he did not pull the trigger on that uh, fatal gunshot on the set of his film. Yeah, you know, I, I did a, uh, uh, a thing late last night with British Radio for a morning show, and they were doing the Alec Baldwin story, and they played the clip, which we're going to play too, by the way, of Baldwin's he didn't pull the uh, trigger and the host of the show in a very droll British accent of course said coming out of it to me 
than who did pull the trigger. <laughs> right. yes. So we will try to answer that question. Right now, uh, other countries have managed to make rapid COVID tests and at-home testing kits widely available, and in many cases, free of charge. So why, oh why, here in the U.S. do rapid COVID tests remain sporadically available and can be really expensive for many people? Dr. Blythe Adamson is an economist and epidemiologist at the University of Washington and founder of the Public Health Company Infectious Economics. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, you know, we were just talking in our, our last uh, segment that, you know, if you go to England, and I've got friends there, and maybe you do too, and they tell me they can go into pretty much any pharmacy, they can get as many free at-home COVID tests as need be. Same I understand now in, in uh, Germany. They get like one a week, yeah. the Germans. So, okay. Yeah, here, have, have your weekly test. But here in in, in uh, the United States of America in the year 2021, soon 2022, uh, and almost two years into this pandemic, good luck in many places finding these at-home tests. And uh, unless you've got a lot of money in the bank, if you have a family of four or five at 25 bucks a pop, that's a lot of money to shell out, even if insurance eventually pays you back, as is now apparently going to be the case. Why can't we get our act together with something as simple as testing? Well, it's fascinating to see the differences between countries and even how, how our health systems are designed. Uh, is really producing some of the differences that we're seeing. I mean, you mentioned you know, going to the UK where they have universal healthcare coverage. And so their purchasing of all of these tests and distribution of tests to, to people in their country, uh, you know, it comes through a more direct fund, funding mechanism. But here in the US, uh, our healthcare system, you know, we've got a fragmented healthcare payer system. And, you know, it's mainly an employer-based. So when individual people in a really or unorganized way are, are trying to do things one at a time, uh, it, it makes it incredibly difficult for us to maximize the efficiencies that we're seeing in other countries. We also do this thing where we say, okay, we can rely on the private companies, private sector, they will bring these tests to market. And so we get a couple of options. Um, are there still too many hoops for others? Why, why haven't we? And they said they're gonna you know, make it easier and streamline this and, and put a bunch of money towards bringing more tests online, but we've yet to see any of them. Right. And you know, I think a lot of us did expect private, private businesses to be leading, but interestingly, it's not the private labs that are leading, it's the private companies that want to reopen their businesses. So I'm starting to see one of the biggest trends is employers themselves are reaching out to local labs in their communities and, and contracting directly with them for their employees to be able to return to in-person work uh, with testing offered at their, at their office. So it's now becoming more convenient for office workers to get tested routinely. They're you know, negotiating bulk discounted rates for the tests and in their contracts, negotiating a guaranteed quick turnaround time so that they're, you know, because we all know if you have to wait three to five days for PCR test results, I mean, the, the results are meaningless to you. They're not even actionable anymore. So I think that we are seeing businesses leading, but it, it's not the ones that we expected at the beginning. Yeah, and, and also to your point about the amount of time that goes by, uh, you know, there are, uh, or at least will be shortly apparently, at least two pills that will be on the market, right, uh, that are antiviral pills that might help uh, mitigate some of the more dire 
outcomes of COVID, but they both, the Pfizer one and the Merck one, uh, have uh, their their optimum impact within a very small window of time, right? I think it's like three, maybe five days at most from the time you test positive. But if you can't get the test to get tested negative or positive, then it makes those pills pretty useless too. Absolutely. This is definitely these new treatments um, are offering the, the best opportunity for, for effectiveness in uh, improving your health if they are delivered right away. But you nailed it. If we don't know that they have COVID until five days later, you know, we've missed that optimal window. And so we've, we've got to get a better system in place. Dr. Blythe Adamson, economist, epidemiologist, University of Washington, also founder of the public health company Infectious Economics. But, you know, we've been sitting here now doing for how long shows about the coronavirus and the pandemic? Almost two years now? Long, long time. Long, long time. And how many experts have we had on who have said what she just said, which is true, you know, we've got to get our act together. We've got to get better at doing this. <laughs> For the next pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, we're not done yet, by the way, on the pandemic or on the Omicron uh, variant, because here's an interesting question that's being looked at, whether or not um, the mutation of this variant occurred in a place that may be surprising. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Well, a little bit later, if you are on social media, and who isn't, you've probably seen everyone posting their lists of top songs and podcasts played on uh, Spotify in 2021. So we will look back on how we spent this year in sound. And before that, L.A.'s ongoing homeless crisis is front of mind for voters. Right now, though, there is a theory making the rounds that the Omicron variant had its origins and uh, all the mutations, uh, not inside of a human body, but inside of an animal body. They're thinking maybe mammal, some kind of rodent, and then jumped back into us. Dr. Robert Gary, professor of microbiology and immunology at the Tulane University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, what say you about this this idea? Well, I think the idea is plausible. I mean, you know, it's going to take a while to to prove this. Uh, Nobody has uh, shown that to be a fact yet. I mean, there are a couple other possibilities out there that are also probably equally as plausible about how this virus might have, uh, you know, changed into this Omicron variant. But it's an unusual one, that's for sure. Well, is there some significance attached to whether, if this theory turns out to be the case, what would the significance, if any, be? Well, it means that this virus, you know, can pass into animals pretty easily. And we already knew that to be a fact. I mean, we've seen white-tailed deer infected all over the United States. We've seen multiple zoo animals infected, lions and tigers, uh, gorillas um, in San Diego there. So um, we know that this is what's called a pantropic virus or a generalist virus. Uh, a promiscuous virus, if you will, one that can infect multiple species. And um, we saw with the minks in the Netherlands and other places in Europe that the virus could spread into these minks that are that are farmed, they're kept in large cages, and then spread back to humans. And, you know, this is just one of the possibilities that we think that might explain this unusual Omicron variant. 
And that's the dangerous part, is to spread back, right? Because we did the story about the deer, which was, oh, we are infecting the deer population, yeah. but we don't think the deer can give it back to us. No. Uh, but if they could, then that would be an issue. Uh, because it, if it mutates in them, then it comes back to us. Yeah, reservoir. Yeah, even if we can make a 100% you know, effective vaccine, which we can't, um, you know, if we just wait a little while and the virus is spreading in animals, rodents, deer, whatever, and it's changing a little bit, then it'll come back to us and then we'll be vulnerable. So that that's a concern for the future. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, I, I mean, I, I presume from what you just said that uh, the ability of a virus to go back and forth is is not that common or or if it's or if that's not the case it's certainly not the norm and it's and, it's, a, it's common in viruses that that you know cause these outbreaks these okay you know, pandemics so it, and think about a virus like rabies that can infect bats and raccoons and skunks and a whole number of species so it's not terribly uncommon uh, you know, to have a virus that is pantropic like SARS-CoV-2. But does that mean, uh, doctor, that it makes it more difficult in the future to prevent uh, mutations? Yeah, if there's the animal reservoir, we, we will be very hard pressed to get rid of it. I mean, we've been successful with a couple of viruses like smallpox and polio to some extent because those viruses don't have animal reservoirs. Uh, if we, you know, see an animal reservoir SARS-CoV-2, that's going to make it a lot more difficult to control, you know, over the long term. One of the other possibilities uh, before we run out of time is from someone who had, you know, long haul or chronic infection, right? That that could be a reservoir because if your body never actually clears the virus, it's still in there and then you could pop it back out in its new form, right? Absolutely. That's certainly one of the possibilities. And, and we've seen some of these multi-mutation variants crop up in people with immune suppressive disease and other kinds of conditions, drugs that they've been given to suppress their immune system. So the, the virus just kind of keeps there in the body for, it can be for months. We've seen it and, you know, the mutations will, you know, gradually accrue over time in a person like that. Dr. Robert Gary, Professor of Microbiology, Immunology, the Tulane University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk. We mentioned before uh, about one of the stories we're going to be doing is about how people are posting on uh, uh, social media. My friends are obsessed with this. Are they? All over Instagram. It's all their Spotify lists. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Alec Baldwin taped an interview with ABC and George Stephanopoulos. It airs tonight. His first sit-down conversation about the events that unfolded on that New Mexico set of his movie. Uh, Gunny was holding, fired a shot that killed the film's director of photography. In the interview, Baldwin claims that he did not pull that trigger. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them. Never. So then the question becomes how that gun went off and fired that fatal bullet. Baldwin also said he has no idea how a live bullet got in the Colt 45 revolver he used in that scene. Steve Wolf is a TV, a TV producer, firearms instructor, and president of Wolf Stuntworks. He's also founder of the educational organization Science in Movies. Steve, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me today. So uh, maybe you can explain it. Uh, Alec Baldwin, as you just heard. Yeah, he <laughs> says that, that he never pulled the trigger, but obviously the gun went off. Is it easy for these guns to go off without actually pulling the trigger? Well, it's not only not easy, it's not possible. Uh, a gun is, a, is an inert 
mechanical device. It has no mind of its own, no ability to control its movement. Uh, it can only be pointed where someone points it, and it can only discharge when someone discharges it. So we're not stuck trying to find an explanation of how a gun went off by itself because it didn't go off by itself. Guns don't do that. Yeah. So what do you make of what he's saying? Is it just uh, trying to... There's a, there's a divergence yeah. between this report and reality. And the gun itself, um, this is the kind with, you know, chamber, hammer, and everything. It's Colt 45, so we think, you know, the kind of gun they're using in an old Western movie. Right. Now, and, now it, and now it is a type of gun that once the hammer has been deliberately cocked, can be inadvertently fired easily because it does have a very light trigger. And, and it is possible while holding the gun to inadvertently apply pressure to the trigger if you've decided to move your finger to the trigger and cause the gun to discharge you know, with, with minimal effort. And, and this, if you do put your finger on the trigger of a Colt 45 that has been cocked, you know, you could sneeze, you could hiccup, you could be startled, you know, any, any number of things. You could have a hard step on the ground. Any, any of these things could cause you to increase the amount of pressure on the trigger such that the gun fires. But the likelihood of the gun firing itself uh, is in my opinion, non-existent. Right. So, so let's let's back it up a little bit and and sort of take it a little bit step by step because the earlier reports, and I think even uh, Mr. Baldwin had uh, said, or at least to investigators, that uh, he was practicing a scene. Right. So I'm not quite sure what he was practicing, but let's say uh, the gun was in the holster and he he yanks it out and does whatever it was he does. Some kind the, of draw. Yeah. yeah. For, for the for the scene, would would the gun be cocked? Could it be accidentally cocked? In the by the act of an actor taking it out of a holster, uh, no. or no, it can't. So no, no, no it can't. So be, because if the if anything on the gun were to snag uh, on your clothing, on your holster, on your belt, um, it would it would snag in the direction of pushing the hammer down or pushing the trigger away from the gun. Um, so, 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 so it can't be cocked accidentally, and it can't be. It wouldn't go off accidentally unless someone's finger is on the trigger, right? Am I that's right? right because th this gun had been invented after the common application of trigger guards. It, it has a trigger guard to make sure that nothing presses the trigger other than your finger. Okay, so it it doesn't appear as if, to give him the benefit of the doubt, his recollection anyway of of his firing or not firing the gun doesn't appear likely that he didn't. Uh, then you still have the issue about why there was a live round to begin with, right? Right. Well, and well, to to stop you at your first point with the issue of his recollection, it's widely known that people who were involved in shootings have very poor recollections. And this is, this is not to say that they're intentionally lying, but having a gun go off in your hand that you didn't expect to go off and putting a hole in someone and watching them die, you know, these are pretty upsetting experiences that cause the release of a great amount of adrenaline. And that chemical and the others, you know, that are released under so much stress cause it to be very difficult to form accurate memories that can be accurately recalled. So this is a possibility. But to make a statement, from your own fuzzy memory sets you up to be seen as a liar. Uh, this is not to say that you're intentionally lying, but, but it, it doesn't make a good case for you. 
Steve Wolf, TV producer, firearms instructor, and uh, president of Wolf Stuntworks, also founder of the education organization Science in Movies. Coming up, new polling shows LA's homeless crisis will be a top issue in next year's election for a new mayor. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Voters in Los Angeles fed up with the rows of tents and piles of trash often associated with homeless encampments that are spread all across the city. This is according to a new poll that shows LA's ongoing homeless crisis will likely be the top issue in next year's election for a new mayor. Voters in the poll repeatedly mentioned having to dodge urine and feces in the streets and talked about a rising sense of disorder order in Los Angeles. So will any politician have the will and the supports to make tough decisions to reduce the city's homeless population? Kevin Murray, president and CEO of the Weingart Center, nonprofit on Skid Row, providing homeless services, formerly served as a California state senator. Kevin, thanks for being with us. So is the problem that everybody says they're going to fix, um, but they haven't. And people are, are what? Does frustration cut it? Does disappointment factor in there? It, people are tired. They want something done. Absolutely. I think they've come to the conclusion that our current approach, which is focused on just, you know, building more housing for homeless is not is not working. It clearly hasn't worked. Uh, we've been operating under this housing first model uh, for some years now. And I think people made it clear that they want short term solutions and long term solutions and they want a variety of solutions. You need, you know, interim housing. You need transitional housing and you need permanent supportive housing uh, and people want all of that and they want us to move away frankly from this singular focus you know on building apartments for people well and to that uh, that point uh, kevin is part of the problem that uh we tend to politicians tend to anyway treat the homeless as a monolithic group uh when in fact there are different kinds of homeless people. There are the homeless people who uh, lost their jobs or, or they're down in their luck for a whole bunch of different reasons and they are without permanent shelter and giving them uh, homes would probably go a long way to eliminating a lot of our social problems. But then you've got groups of people who are homeless, yes, but they also have other you know, uh, psychological issues that are not going to be fixed by putting them in a home temporary or otherwise. You know, that is absolutely the problem. Um, you know, if you think about it, if you take somebody who is psychotic and or schizophrenic and or a substance abuser, our current model is the goal is to put them in an apartment by themselves. And that apartment probably has a microwave and a gas stove. So that's just not a good idea. And, you know, we need to be multimodal. We've got to meet the homeless where they are. You are absolutely correct. They are not monolithic. And not only is you know, that singular type of housing not appropriate for them, but oftentimes they don't want it. Look at our place down here. We have people who have been offered permanent housing uh, and would prefer to stay in our place rather than go to a new place they don't know. So there are lots of different uh, types of people who are homeless, and we need to kind of come up with, a, with options that are most suited for them. So I think you're absolutely correct. What are those options look like? Or do we spend too much time on the, the trade-off, too, between the short-term and long-term, like you were saying? Because it takes a while to build the, the big think, stuff. But if, if you can't get people into the, the bridge in between, then you're going to be waiting the whole time. Well, I think we do spend too much time worrying about that. But I think 
the, the, at the current state, we don't essentially, other than home key and when we've been forced to, home key and room key, which I'm sure you've talked about on your shows before, um, we just now started to add more transitional and interim housing for people. Um, part of the problem with building permanent housing is that even if it is appropriate, it's expensive and it takes a long time to build. Uh, you know, we have some projects that have taken as long as six years to, to get approved. And then some we've gotten approved in a year. So there's a, a, a big variety there. But I think you just need to be multimodal. You know, when I was in the legislature, I spent a lot of time on transportation issues, as you guys talk about a lot on your show. And the buzzword was always multimodal. You need bike lanes and you need trains and you need airplanes and you need highways. Uh, same thing with homelessness. You need different types of, of, of uh, placements for people. We, for instance, we don't have enough mental health beds. So if someone is severely mentally ill, we don't have enough beds, particularly in you know, locked or controlled facilities, um, to really deal with someone who is severely mentally ill. And and is that though, uh, you know, I'm trying to 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 be diplomatic about, it, but maybe <laughs> I, maybe I shouldn't be. Uh, but is that the way the solution that some politicians have come up with, but they'll never admit to? And and what I'm getting at is, uh, the the late uh, senator from New York State, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, once talked about benign neglect. Uh, and I'm wondering whether or not the thinking is that for some groups of homeless people, you just kind of let things unfold and eventually things will take care of themselves. And what do I mean by that? They eventually die. Yeah, I, I think the, the, there, there is a, a portion of that, but I actually think a little bit differently about it. I think, you know, part of the problem is we... Um, uh, and again, trying to, to, to match your diplomacy, we, make, we also make this kind of a choice thing. Like, you know, we go out and we offer you, you know, a particular type of housing. And then if you don't take that, then we sort of let you die on the vine, as you've, as you've correctly point, pointed out. You know, I think, A, we need to be more assertive. And we also need to have a more, a larger variety of options for people, not necessarily based upon their choice, but based upon, you know, what's appropriate. And we do have this monolithic view uh, of that they're all the same. And if we put them all in an apartment, they'll be fine. Uh, and we also don't take into account the idea that you could offer somebody a brand new apartment and they still might not take it. And they still might need, you know, if they have mental, if they have mental issues, you know, for instance, we, ex we expect somebody who might be severely mentally ill to make a rational decision to move into an apartment. Uh, and I just don't think that that is, you know, that makes sense or is rational in any way. Kevin Murray, president and CEO of the Weingart Center, nonprofit on Skid Row, providing homeless services, um, used to be a California state senator. Kevin, thanks for talking to us. More in-depth is on the way, another half an hour. We are back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Over the last month of free agency, Major League Baseball teams have handed out nearly $2 billion in player contracts. That is a staggering figure. And then last night, those same owners who spent all of that money signing players 
lock them out. The collective bargaining agreements between the players' union and team owners expired last night. Negotiations to reach a new deal stuck in neutral, so will baseball be played in the spring? John Heyman, insider at the MLB Network and for our very own Odyssey Sports. John, thanks for being here. So uh, nothing said this had to happen, right? I mean, this was the owners. They pulled the lever. They uh, they locked the door. Yeah, they felt that the pressure needed to be uh, applied, and uh, they're hoping that uh, it means that the players will uh, – present a better offer at least in their eyes and uh that they'll come closer right now things are not great though um you know the rhetoric is really bad i looked at some of the proposals uh there was some uh incremental movement but uh they are not close the best thing that they have going for them is that there's nearly four months to go before the season begins so no games will be lost unless this really drags on what are some of the the key sticking points then john Well, you know, the union wants uh, free agency to move from six years to five for many players and also um, the arbitration to move from three years to two. Um, And also they want revenue sharing uh, changed a little bit. They want it reduced. They want the big teams to give less to the small teams. Um, You know, I think that's a hard one to go with. You know, I think the teams can decide what they give each other. So that's difficult. But uh, you know, I am sympathetic to some of the uh, uh, player uh, suggestions. Um, you know, there are some guys who uh, end up waiting a long time to free agency. Like Aaron Judge with the Yankees will be, you know, well over 30 by the time he's a free agent because he was a, a college guy. So um, I get that. And, uh, you know, I mean, both sides have moved a bit, but there's a long way to go. Thankfully, there's a lot of time left, and that's the best thing uh, that they've got going for them right now. Yeah, who do you think has the, the sympathy vote when it comes to this? Or is it just, you know what, it's not even winter yet, so we'll worry about spring when we get there? Because, I mean, I guess this didn't have to happen. They could have continued negotiating with the expired contract. They didn't have to pull the lockout, but it's all about pressure and getting people places that you want yeah. them to be, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it is about pressure. I mean, from everything you hear from the union is that they have great resolve and this isn't going to matter to them, but uh, they certainly did uh, uh, complain about the, the being locked out, which I, you know, I don't blame them. Um, you know, you look at the MLB website now and there's no player pictures or at all. They're just uh, gen- generic uh, cutouts. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty sad. But, uh, you know, I think the, I think the fans are not happy about this, but uh, I think that it's really the, the real thing that they need to do is get this done. Um, you know, I mean, it's going to take probably months to be realistic, but they need to get this done and not, uh, not miss any games. You know, I, I think generally um, when you start this, the, the fans are a little more sympathetic uh, to the players, but uh, you know, not all of them are. Some of them uh, believe that the guys who own the teams, the entrepreneurs, the owners, uh, you know, they're they're the ones taking the gamble. So, um, but you know, the game isn't anything without the players. So, uh, well, the, they do have to figure this out. Well, the fact, John, that this is sort of a rare uh, event uh, would indicate that this has clearly been festering for some time. So maybe the question is not why did it happen now? Why didn't it happen before? Well, you know what, uh, Rob Manfred, who's now the commissioner of baseball, was the lead negotiator for a long time before he became commissioner a couple decades and um you know they were able to get deals done it's been a quarter they had a quarter century of labor peace unprecedented and they were able to do it i think some of this has to do with the personalities um you know 
the union has uh, new people in there now. They had uh, Michael Weiner in there, who was uh, actually really beloved by the MLB office, even though they were uh, rivals, you would say. Um, and they did deals without too much trouble. And then, um, you know, he tragically died in his 50s. And, uh, you know, one of his protégés, Tony Clark, is in there. And now they have uh, they've hired a hired gun from the NHL, Bruce Meyer. And uh, since he's gotten in, they've really not agreed on anything. He's been there for a couple of years now. And if you recall last year, um, Rob Manfred had to order the players uh, back to the field. They never did get an agreement uh, during the pandemic. Um, so they've really had 25 years of labor peace. Uh, MLB union, the players union changed uh, leadership and they've had nothing, no peace since then. So, you know, I'm not going to blame one side or the other, but certainly the per personality change made it made a big effect on this because, uh, you know, Manfred was able to do deals with uh, Michael Weiner and his predecessor, uh, Don Fear. They didn't love Don Fear, but they did deals with him. And uh, just seems like uh, there's a personality clash right, that's, right. that's hurting things right now. John Heyman, insider at MLB Network and our uh, very own Odyssey Sports. John, thanks. How did you spend your 2021? Your playlist of music and podcasts may tell the tale. You're listening to the KNX In-Depth along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. December 1st marks that time of year. We're not talking about winter or the holidays. We're talking about Spotify wrapped season. The time of year when your friends and family's Instagram and Twitter feeds become flooded with graphics from the streaming service on the most listened to songs, artists, genres, and podcasts. To discuss 2021 in sounds, Jem Oswad, senior music editor at Variety. Jem, thanks for being with us. So for people who are not on Spotify and don't know what we're talking about, uh, take us through it. I started to notice, you know, fairly recently when all the Instagram stories of my friends listed like their top five or these color-coded maps were showing up saying they like this kind of music or this kind of music. People get sent this once they've done gone, gone through the year from their Spotify accounts, right? And then it says you've been listening to these people and you've spent this much time doing it? Well, yeah, it basically logs how much time you've spent listening to which music um, album specifically, I think. Uh, throughout the entire year. And for some people, that's what they would have done for a top 10. For other people, it's just, you know, things they ran to, things they put on in the background. Like mine is really not that close to what my top 10 for the year would have been. So can we learn anything from these lists that people are, are making and distributing on social media? Well, I think the people who are doing it, it does reflect what they desired to listen to the most, you know, I mean, uh, destination listening, if you if I could call it that. For me, like, you know, I'm someone who needs to have music on in the background. And, you know, sometimes that's a radio station, sometimes they talk too much, so I'll put on something on Spotify. And the things that were my most listened to my rap list this year is really not what my top 10 would have been. It was things I put on in the background when I just needed music, you know? And I mean, that's not like, you know, uh, uh, you know what we used to call Muzak. It's things like, you know, there are certain Latin records like Paloma Mami's, this is this wonderful 
Spanish singer um, who I play all the time, sounds great in the background. A lot of R&B sounds great in the background. And that's not to dismiss them as, you know, as, as being great music. It's just something that's good background music. Whereas like, you know, personally, I can't listen to hip hop in the background because the, the you know, the vocals are too distracting. So, you know, I mean, it's not really, it's not necessarily indicative of what people's actual favorite things are. It might just be the thing that they played when they were in the gym. Which is why I think people post it, right? Because either you're one of the people that, that your top five maybe is your top five and you, you post it and you go, oh, look, I'm so proud of who I'm listening to. I'm going to share it. It's me in a bubble. Or it's, okay, look how embarrassing this is because it's some weird stuff on here that I have on in the background or for weird situations or, or, or what have you. Or, uh, hey, I found this music. Let me share it with you guys and, and I'll put it up. Well, yes, exactly. And also, if you have family accounts, um, that can get even more interesting because a couple of years ago, I was like, Lil Wayne, I hardly listen to Lil Wayne at all. Why <laughs> He's my he top my artist now. <laughs> my daughter, yeah. What, what about, what about uh, podcasts? Uh, are people, uh, do we know anything about, in terms of what they're posting uh, with podcasts, what seems to be the more popular ones now? Um, to be honest, well, I mean, you can go to you can go to variety.com and find uh, look at the Spotify year end charts. I can tell you that for better or worse, their number one podcast of the year was Joe Rogan. Um, but uh, in terms of wrapped, I actually don't know whether it would turn. I, I assume it would if people were listening to a lot of podcasts. I don't listen to that many myself, so I'm not certain. One of my friends posted his, and it was the podcast page, and, and, you know, like, Meet the Press was there and the BBC thing, and he goes, this was my early, you know, year when I was trying to listen to all this COVID and politics, and it's like, what a drag those few months were, he said, but that's, it rocketed to the top of his list, and he's like, well, this is what it was, folks. Yep. Yeah, it's, um, it's the unvarnished truth. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, earlier in, in the show, we were talking with our, our colleague, uh, Karen Adams and and she Karen right you you're not you don't post any of this stuff you know so is she just not normal (laughs) (laughs) next time she'll say no I'm not available to come on I'm sorry no I mean she she doesn't do that and and I, I don't know if I should applaud her or not I mean, it, you know, it's up to the person. It's it's really just a part of social media, like so many other things. And I, you know, I mean, I know people who don't deal with social media at all. I know people who quote unquote lurk, although I don't really like that term for it, where they just don't feel like putting themselves out there. You know, I mean, like uh, social media is my father's worst nightmare. He's a very private person. And like, you know, the thought of him doing something like that is is completely inconceivable. Um, you know, uh, I post things, but like, you know, look, I'm a snobby music critic, so I get my top 10 published and I don't need to use Spotify <laughs> rap to publicize it to the world. <laughs> We've also, this has also launched like a thousand memes that are counter this, because now I see those like, okay, people, I don't care what you're listening to. Yeah. Stop cluttering up my feed and just go and put on your headphones and leave me alone. I don't need to see it. Yeah. There's that too. That is a fair take as well. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jem Oswald, the senior music editor at Variety. Karen, so, you, Karen you're doing the right thing. <laughs> just, just listen in peace. No one needs to see it. Or, uh, you know what, get Spotify this year and rack up your favorites and post it next year to oh, your okay. heart's content. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow, right? Yeah, Friday, 1 p.m.